We hope everybody enjoyed that spectacular weekend. We've had a number of them. Man, fall in Ohio. It's a great place to be. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Atassi, and Laura Johnston. And as always on Monday, we have some very interesting stories to discuss. Let's start. We now know the inside story of how the Ohio Redistricting Commission came to agreement on a bipartisan map. Lisa, how did it happen? Well, and we didn't think it was going to happen because the two Democrats on the redistricting commission, House Minority Leader Allison Russo and Senate Minority Leader Nikki Antonio, at first said they weren't going to pass any maps that maintained or expanded Republican control, but they voted in the end. And the reasons for that, in a nutshell, include that they figure better these maps than one even more favorable to the GOP. And also they wanted to provide stability for voters regarding their districts and constantly change changing lines and constantly changing representatives. And they're also really hoping that the proposed amendment for an independent redistricting commission passes next November. Russo said it was not an easy decision for her. She didn't want to support this because she didn't like the maps. But um, it ended up that, you know, uh, House Speaker Jason Stevens and Senate President Matt Huffman weren't on the commission, although they were kept in the loop. And then three statewide guys, DeWine, Faber, and LaRose just kind of barely attended. But Auditor Keith Faber actually stepped in to become a de facto mediator. He kept the negotiations going. He said that all sides made compromises in some areas I didn't like and some areas that the Democrats didn't like. But he said the ultimate goal was to get a deal. So that's kind of what happened. They were fighting over like little small changes to bigger, you know, uh, urban districts. So they were going back and forth. That's what took so long because every time you change a line just slightly, you know, you have to rerun the map through the computer software. Yeah. I want to say right up front, these these aren't great maps. These are the best maps we're going to get in this system, which means the system is bent. But you do have to give Keith Faber. He's the first Republican on that commission in the existence of it that actually reached across to try and make a compromise. Yeah. The the Republicans own the process, so they were going to get more than they should get, but at least he reached out. I do want to go back. When we passed the the constitutional amendments to change the way we draw lines, it came on the eve of a move, independent move, to put a constitutional amendment in to draw the lines a different way. The League of Women Voters was behind it. And the legislature stepped up and said, no, 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 you don't need to do that. We'll do it. We'll put together an amendment to put on the Constitution and we'll take care of this. And it created this commission. I think they fully intended to take advantage of this not good system to try and gerrymander, which they've done. And it's too bad that the legal women voters didn't stick to its guns way back when and put in a better system. Our only answer now is Maureen Mm O'Connor, who is ready to put something on the ballot next November, where we'll throw all these guys off. And we will aim for something like they have in Michigan, independent people trying to do the right 
thing. Yeah, this was, it was, you know, sad that they, and I don't want to use the word capitulate because I think that they just said, okay, this is the best we can do. But they actually did get praise from across the aisle. The Democrats did. They did praise Russo and Antonio for negotiating in good faith. And and there was praise all around for Keith Faber too. I know that as soon as the, you know, they approved the maps and the meeting ended, you know, ever all the reporters ran to Faber for his take on what was going on. Yeah, I look, I give a lot of credit and I give credit to the Democrats. If they would have thrown down and said, no, no, we're not doing it. It, it doesn't suffice. It would be worse for the next two years. They did the best they could. They worked it out. They came up with the deal that nobody is quite happy with. But it, but they, they, I mean, in some ways the system worked, but the system's broken because we're still gerrymandered. Good story by Jeremy Pelzer. It lays it all out. You can find it on cleveland.com, and we're talking about it on Today in Ohio. What we don't know about the new maps, Laura, is how long they will last. It's not just because we do expect to vote on a new mapping system next year that would abolish them. There's another reason the expiration date is a big question mark. What is it? Yeah, we're not clear if this will be in place for two years or eight years because we're not sure if this is a replacement of the maps from last year or if this is a modification. And that's the crux of the issue. So under the state's constitutional redistricting rules, any legislative redistricting plan with bipartisan support lasts for 10 years until the next census where you have to do it again. While plans with only one party support expire after four years. Now, if you remember last year when we're going through this, that was only one party support. They would expire in 2025. So if this is a modification of that plan, you'd get that expiration date. If this is a whole new plan, you'd go till the next census. Everybody, most people, the Democrats and the Republicans do think this is going to last eight years. They said it's up for the court to decide. But the question is, who would take it to court? It has to, you know, it's not like an automatic court um, takes takes a look at this. Yeah, fighting about these maps is the wrong way to go. All energy should be put into creating a new system. J- just accept the maps, move on. It'll last for one election if you're successful in redoing the way we handle this. It's gerrymandered. It's not fair. Mm-hmm. So let's fix the system. I'd hate to see this get all wrapped up in the courts and pose questions. Every time we come up on an election, it seems we have last minute changes going on. Wouldn't it be nice to head into an election one year where everything was set? We're not changing the laws. We're not changing the lines. We're not playing games. Yeah, you ac- actually get more voter participation and more civic participation if people feel like they understand what's going on because I think the redistricting was so confusing with both legislative and congressional going on at the same time with different processes and different dates and adding an August primary last year. People just felt out of it and so they might not have voted. I mean, we had an 8% turnout last time for the uh, legislative primary. So I I think if people feel informed, they'll feel much more confident about taking part in the electoral process. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Long-term weather predictions like those in Farmer's Almanacs are not worth the paper they come on, as history shows. But we're getting predictions of a mild winter because of the El Nino system in the Pacific Ocean. We've had predictions based on El Ninos multiple times over the recent decades. Layla, are they any more accurate than the Almanacs? It seems that they are. So what we know about El Nino is that this is a climate pattern that typically splits the country into two climates. The southern part of the country trends wetter and cooler than average. And then the northern part, including our region, will will have a a drier and warmer 
condition this this winter. And early forecasts show that the U.S. will have at least a moderate El Nino winter this year. For us, that means a prediction of drier, warmer winter and not much snow for the second winter in a row, much to the chagrin of our kids <laughs> who just want to play outside. But so as it turns out, unlike the farmer's almanac, which appears to be a coin toss, the El Nino predictions have been largely accurate. Since 1950, there have been four strong El Nino winters in the U.S., 1957, 1982, 97, and 2015. Each time the predicted dry, the, the predicted drier winter mostly came to pass. Those four winters rank among the lowest snowfall statistics since 1950. But when it comes to temperature, three of the four El Nino winters have been among the warmest on record for Cleveland. Temperatures for those winters averaged in the low 40s. 1957 had an average temperature of 35.7, which is a little closer to normal for Cleveland. So what does that all mean for us this coming year? If we do end up with less snow than average, the biggest problem with that is that it could lead to the kind of drought conditions we started to see last this past summer. And, and that could be a problem for farmers. Yeah, well, it, based on the last three weekends, I'm hoping for another warm, dry winter. <laughs> I don't care about the playing in the snow. I love it when you can go outside all winter long and be comfortable and you're not clearing away snow and driving on ice. Uh, okay. Come on, bring El Nino on. But, They're rare. But, but it, it, we're already in a drought. It's going to make the drought worse. I, we're not in a drought now. Yes, the, we uh, are. The, dr the drought conditions were all ruled to have been over in most of the state. I believe they've gone up again in the last few days. I saw a report on, you know, maybe more south and west of us. But yeah, there's... I mean, my my grass is not growing anymore. It's kind mm -hmm. of brownish. But I would like to make the argument that you cannot go out and play in a 40-degree, drizzly, overcast like <laughs> day in Cleveland. What are you going to do? If you have snow, you go out and play with it. You can cross-country ski. Last year, Rex Eckner said it was the first time he can remember in eons that he didn't get to cross-country ski anywhere. There wasn't any. Um, you can go snow ski, which thank God they can make their own snow. Uh, we can go but, skating. I mean, there's wait, all wait, sorts wait, of wait, fun though. to be had. But you're talking about gray, drizzly rain. Layla just said it's going to be dry. That means no precipitation, not all right, just forms. gray and probably just miserable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're so pessimistic. 42 degrees and gray. Yes, yes. I would much rather have that winter from two years ago where the snow stayed on the ground for like 30 days in a row. That was my kind of winter. Well, you should go back to Canada then because in <laughs> Cleveland this year, it's going to be moderate if history is a guide. That's true. It's probably going to be moderate <laughs> go, in Canada go too. Go to where you came from, you <laughs> moron. <laughs> you're listening to Today in Ohio. The biggest issue in Ohio just now is the abortion amendment on the November ballot. A big issue next year in Ohio is the Senate race. Andrew Tobias brought the two together by asking the Senate candidates where they stand on the abortion amendment. Lisa, what did they tell him? I think they fell as expected. We have, of course, three Republicans vying to unseat Sherrod Brown, the incumbent, next year. Um, Matt Dolan of Chagrin Falls, he says he's informed by his Catholic faith. He said he would vote to ban abortion in Ohio with exceptions for rape and incest, and he also would retain the sex education and birth control provisions. That tracks with an interview he gave back in 2020. He says he will protect the Hyde Amendment that bans 
federal money for abortions and will penalize doctors who fail to care for babies that are born after failed abortions. He said he does not support a nationwide ban, however. He says it's up to the states. Our Secretary of State, Frank LaRose, says he supports a national ban with exemptions for a mother's life, but maybe not exemptions for rape and incest. He's still not sure about that. Um, He said Ohio's suspended six-week ban or call we, what we call the heartbeat bill is a good standard, but he said, and this is interesting, he said there's actually room to negotiate up to 20 weeks. And I think some of these Trump followers are kind of tracking with recent things that Trump has said about abortion, where he doesn't feel like there should be a nationwide ban and there should be, you know, certain parameters for abortions. Um, Bernie Moreno, this is a first, he's a first time candidate. Uh, We don't really have a voting record for him, but a Breitbart interview in 2021, he says he would not have any exemptions for rape or incest. He says life begins at, you know, at conception. And he says that he would support a national 15 week abortion ban because he figures that would be the most conservative that would be able to pass the democratic controlled Senate. And he says, it's really more a state level thing. He says we should do more on the state level and less on the federal level. Of course, Sherrod Brown, our Democratic incumbent, he doesn't really have an issue section on his web site, but he's a long record uh, on abortion rights. Uh, The only blip in that record was back in 1993 when he voted to block Medicaid from covering abortion because he figures that his constituents didn't want tax money used for abortions. It's interesting what you said about people talking now about 20 weeks mm-hmm. or negotiating, because if they'd have done that originally, they wouldn't have constitutional amendments like Ohio's going to have. If they had been reasonable instead of just playing to the fringe ends of their, mm-hmm. ends of their party, maybe we wouldn't have had to do this. We could have negotiated something everybody would agree with. I mean, we talk about people being for abortion rights, but but nobody wants abortion. They're talking about women having dominion over their bodies. And there was a path, but the Republicans were so greedy and so ridiculous in what they did that we'll have a constitutional amendment in Ohio that forever legalizes abortion. And that's that's what happens when you don't reach across the aisle and try and do reasonable things. I'm surprised at how hard line some of these guys are because that is not in keeping with where Ohio is, but they're playing to their base. They're trying to win a primary. But they've opened the door. I mean, both, you know, Dolan and... Uh uh, uh, Dolan and Moreno are saying, Hey, maybe we can negotiate this 15 to 20 weeks. So I think there's a, there, the doors open a crack there. Except the voters are going to slam it because they're going to and, go to the polls and say it's legal, go away. And that's the constitution. So and they're luck. running for the U S Senate. You know, they're not in charge in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting story. It's a good idea by Andrew to check, even though it kind of fell the way you would expect it would. You're listening to today in Ohio. Cleveland's housing situation is a nightmare these days with out-of-town owners refusing to keep up their properties and making the whole rental situation a big mess. Layla, Mayor Justin Bibb thinks he has an answer. What is it? This is one of the most dramatic and powerful public policy changes to come out of the Bibb administration, in my opinion. He's he's proposing what he's calling the Residence First Housing Reform Agenda. This would be a sweeping overhaul of building, housing, zoning, fire and health codes that dictate City Hall's response to some of Cleveland's biggest housing problems. And the idea here is to be more proactive with code enforcement than just being reactive to complaints. 
One of its most important features is that it would hold out-of-state investors accountable for the slums that they're keeping in Cleveland. A recent housing survey found that 54% of Cleveland home transactions are going to business buyers, and many of those who are out-of-state will put off repairs and then jack up rent on their tenants. And if the city can even find the person who's responsible for that property and hit them with some code violations, they skip court dates with impunity and, and it doesn't really matter. So here are some of the features of this new proposed law. All homes in Cleveland that are not owner-occupied would need a local agent in charge, and contact information has to be provided to the city. That person would be legally responsible for the property, and the city would serve them code violations or take action against them. If the owner lives in Cuyahoga County or a contiguous county, they can be the agent in charge. But if they are outside of this immediate area, or if it's a corporation that owns the property, they've got to appoint someone in Cuyahoga County to be responsible, and that person would be on the hook for all the legal consequences and the civil fines and the conditions. But then there's this rental registry that that there have been loopholes that let the property owners fall through the cracks. For example, they can simply claim that they they get nothing of value out of their property and that they own it, but that they're letting a family member live there rent-free or something. And that gets them out of the rental registry requirement. Most of the time, that's a total lie. In one example, that the housing director cited for Courtney. One person owns 25 different properties in Cleveland, but they claim that they're getting nothing of value from any of them. So this new law that's being proposed would close that loophole. It would require registry from every non-owner-occupied home and the designation of an agent in charge. And you need to get a rental certificate, which includes the lead safe designation and other safety hazard checks. And if it's a multi-unit building, it has to be subject to regular HVAC checks because we've all heard those terrible stories about tenants who end up living without heat because their landlord is awful and doesn't keep up with repairs. So those are some of the highlights. This is this really blew me away. I I, I was so impressed with the uh, how aggressive this package of of reforms is. Well, and it's it's merited, and it's kind of based on what was going on in South Euclid, right? Because they passed some of these similar laws, had success, and then they're bringing it here. Um, one of the questions I had, though, is what does owner-occupied mean? We don't have a lot of snowbirds, I don't think, that live in Cleveland these days and, and go to Florida. They're probably mostly in the suburbs. But is is it owner-occupied if you live in it in, in the summer and fall, but go to Florida in the winter? Hmm. That's a good question. I I. I assume that that means that that is an owner-occupied property. It's not considered vacant, and it's not a tenant who's living there. Um, so if it's a place that you occupy part of the year, I, I mean, but I'm not the expert, but that that sounds like that falls into the category of owner-occupied. And obviously, the, the owner is reachable to deal with problems with their property right. in that case. The mail is still being delivered to their house, even if it's being held. But yeah, this could this could remarkably change things, forcing them to have a human being who yes. you can go after and haul into housing court and cite with contempt and put behind bars or make live in these houses as some judges have done in the past could be the game changer because there's just way too much neglect and it destroys a neighborhood when there are houses right. in neglect. One of the most aggressive aspects of this initiative is how it treats vacant properties. Those, those, you know, would require an agent in charge as well. And there's a registration process. And before you can sell a vacant property, a city inspection would be required. If that turns up code violations, 
the, the agent in charge or the buyer, they'd have to put up $5,000 in escrow to get it up to code within six months or so. And if repairs aren't made in time, the escrow uh, becomes the city's money for repairing the home or demolishing it. And at vacant commercial properties, they require a cash bond of, of up to $15,000 upon registration. And the same, the city can draw down that money for inspections or demolition if needed. I mean, that that is the game changer. We have so many vacant properties in Cleveland. And, and uh, to have have accountability associated with this this glut of, of housing falling into disrepair, it's it's this really is remarkable. You'd think that this would create a cottage industry of local agents in charge, but who would want that job when a judge can lock you up if you don't right. get the house fixed? I wouldn't want to be the agent in charge for an unscrupulous owner. That would be a risk not worth taking. Good stuff. A bold move by the Cleveland mayor. You're listening to Today in Ohio. A giant swath of America believes it is allergic to penicillin. Turns out most likely are wrong. Laura, how did that happen? Yeah, about 10% of Americans think they're allergic to penicillin basically because maybe they had an adverse reaction at one time, kind of a side effect, or they used to be and they've outgrown it. it. But people probably thought it was common enough that if they doubted it, they'd just be like, oh, I'm allergic. But that's a problem because only about 1% of the population actually is. And if you if you are allergic or doctors think you're allergic to penicillin, you have to have a more complicated treatment plan for a lot of things. So you'll have to go for a second or third line antibiotic. And we also know that with uh, resistance to antibiotics that get built up, you're, you're at risk for things like MRSA. And it's a lot more difficult to treat the original issue. Yeah, I was surprised by this because how many times in your life when you go to the doctor are you asked if you're allergic to penicillin? It's one of the standard questions. Mm-hmm. But I was just surprised that so so many of the people that think they are really aren't. Uh, and it could be kind of a game changer, as you said. Interesting yeah. story. And the clinic, so they're launching a campaign to raise awareness and make it easier for patients to be evaluated. So any clinic physician can now place an order for this penicillin allergy consultation, and it's completely virtual, can be scheduled online using my chart, and then doctors will determine if they should follow follow up with further testing, including skin testing or a supervised oral dose of penicillin. So then hopefully this will become a bigger campaign so that we can get all those people who mistakenly believe that they're allergic, that they'll realize that they're not and they won't have to worry about that anymore. All right. You are listening to Today in Ohio. Reporter Adam Faris did it again last week with another great yarn coming out of his beat covering federal courts. This time, it was about some bad guys looking to steal a heavily guarded cocaine stash. But Lisa, there was no stash. What's the story there? Yeah, this is a great story. And there's like a double cross element in it as well. But the Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms Bureau, as you know, they were here in August doing a sweep of criminals for illegal guns. But we got some insight into an undercover drug operation that sprang from this. It resulted in the federal indictment of five Cleveland men with connections to the Heartless Felons Gang. Derek Williams, 38 years old, he He's a known heartless felon. He is currently at large. His brother, Marcus Williams, 22-year-old Maurice Commons, and 33-year-old Alan Teeks Heard all pled not guilty last week in federal court. 24-year-old Antonio Sweeney will be arraigned this Wednesday. They're all charged with conspiracy to 
possess and distribute cocaine and other drug and gun charges. So back in June, after they kind of figured out what was going on, ATF agents met with a member of another gang, the Sex Money Murder Blood Gang, who has not been charged. And he directed the agents to dealers who were working out of uh, an area at East 115th Street, and that was Derek Williams' crew. So they bought crack from this crew many times, and then they planted an idea with Derek Williams to rob a stash house that didn't exist, and they all they planned it out. It was, you know, very carefully planned out. The agents made up a story about a Mexican cartel that was, you know, uh, stiffing them you know, on uh, drug payments and they wanted revenge. And Williams says, oh, we can handle that. And he said, you know, the plan with five men would toss a, a flashbang or smoke grenades into this fake stash house, shoot everyone outside and inside and steal up to 10 to 12 kilograms of pure cocaine. And Williams, when they were planning, he said, you know, this is my life. We're pros. I got some crash test dummies I can just send in. They're going to be going in straight killing, he said. So they met one last time before the raid and, you know, they talked about, you know, hey, to the agent said, why don't we hit you with a gun so it looks real? You know, they wanted to make it look real. But when they went to uh, Buckeye State Storage on Broadway, that's where they were going to wait for the cartel to call. So ATF agents moved in and arrested four of them. Derek was not present and they were interrogated at the ATF office in Independence. And this is where they found out the double cross. Marcus Williams admitted to a new plan to rob the agent when he came outside with the cocaine instead of entering the stash house. And they said, oh, they'd call him later about splitting the drugs or making the agent pay for them. But the agents were a few steps ahead of them. Yeah, it was, I mean, they the way they were talking, you wonder if that was boastful or if it's real, but they were talking about just mayhem, gunshot mm-hmm. mayhem. Um, and amazing that the, the federal agents were able to get all that locking them all up. But, but what was interesting too, was the one family, it had multiple runs at this kind of thing. I think the brother was the third person in the line Mm -hmm. to take up this line of work. Mm -hmm. It's just, yeah, it's uh, anybody that's dealing drugs, I guess also has to be a target of theft. Good stuff by Adam. You're listening to today in Ohio. Last week was filled with nonstop talk about fringe Republicans who were bent on shutting down the government. Lost in the shuffle were the workers who would have been furloughed, including many in Northeast Ohio. Ultimately, Congress averted it, helping those people. But as usual, we have a couple of embarrassing elected leaders in Ohio that wanted to shut down the government anyway. Layla, what's it all about? (laughs) <laughs> yes. Well, so as you said, the the immediate crisis was averted by the last minute agreement passed by the House and Senate with bipartisan majorities. And President Biden signed it Saturday to keep the government funded through November 17th. But three Ohio Congress members voted against this plan. In the Senate, the only no votes came from nine Republicans, including Ohio's J.D. Vance, Vance posted on social media that he doesn't like temporary funding bills, and he accused Democrats for being willing to shut down the government if the spending package didn't include funding for Ukraine. Representatives Jim Jordan and Warren Davidson were the only Ohioans among the 90 Republicans who opposed this plan. 
they had supported an earlier temporary funding proposal that would have imposed tough border restrictions and cut most domestic programs by nearly 30%. But that failed after 21 Republicans opposed it along with all the Democrats. Jordan didn't talk about his vote after the fact, but Davidson released a statement on social media saying that Joe Biden's spending plan continues to bankrupt the country and engineers this massive southern border crisis. On the flip side of the Republican coin, Representative Dave Joyce, uh, who who supported this this, uh, effort, released a statement that said that the temporary spending bill wasn't his first choice, but it was really the only way forward. And at least it has an additional $16 million for disaster relief for natural disasters that have hit the country hard. So that's how it shook out. It, it is a remarkable moment in the speakership of McCarthy and that Democrats and Republicans got together to thwart the fringe people like Jordan and Matt Getz and all those folks. It would be nice if this were to continue in the future. The fringe has been way too powerful because everybody allows it to be. And if people like Dave Joyce are willing to reach across the aisle and do things in moderate movements, you could thwart that completely and stop having the nonsense that we've seen these last two years. I mean, you know, wouldn't it be great if they decided to remove people like Jim Jordan from their committee leadership so we stop embarrassing Ohio every time he opens his mouth? Yes, but isn't it true that Republicans in Congress had a deal with the White House on spending levels earlier this year? Yeah. And that that was supposed to avoid this whole crisis, and McCarthy ripped it up to please his far-right you know, friends. But, and, and some conserv- conservatives are still threatening his job over the, the, what seemed to be a good compromise earlier. I mean, it's uh, so, so if you have a leader like that... <laughs> I, I'm not sure that I see that that you know more compromises is in the future. But ultimately, this was this was a, an emergency. But ultimately, he did rebuff them. He he ultimately did say enough. You're clowns. I'm not going to do that. And I'm not sure that they even have the juice now to try and remove him. There's actually a big move being made through the ethics investigation to kick Matt Getz out of the house. I mean, so he mm-hmm. he may have overreached. It's a it's a fascinating moment. At least they averted shut down. Their job is to run the government, right? That's the job. So they shouldn't be threatening to shut down the government for their little pet projects. They should be figuring out a way to keep government moving. Most did. Unfortunately, Jim Jordan, J.D. Vance, the public face of Ohio, played their little games and wanted to take their toys and go home. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We're not going to get to our last story. We'll save it for tomorrow. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody that listens to the Today in Ohio. We'll be back on Tuesday.